compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Stephen Alby. Please join with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather in your name, to study your word, Lord, to fellowship with one another, to give you worship and praise. God, it's so easy for us to feel as though this is just routine. But God, when we're reminded of our brothers and sisters across this world that would be thrown in prison for doing exactly what we're doing here, God, may we be reminded of just how great of a privilege this is. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be with our brothers and sisters across this globe who struggle every day to uh, worship you, to learn um, with the fear of persecution. God, we praise you for the freedoms we have in this country. We pray against anyone who would want to take those freedoms away. And God, we thank you that we can speak openly and clearly about you. I pray you would give us opportunities to do that in our relationships, in our friendships, in our work. And Father, we pray for this, this area. We pray for the city of Spencer, God, that you would continue to work in this area. God, we know that there are people here who desperately need you. We pray that you would give us opportunities to share your word with them. God, we pray for those who may be experiencing financial difficulty. God, that you would bless them, that you would show up in unexpected ways, that you would meet their needs. And God, that we as a church would be open and generous to meet those needs as well. God, we pray for those in our city and especially those in this room who are struggling with illness. Lord, we know that um, the flu epidemic uh, that hit here just a few weeks ago, Lord, is still being experienced by some, and we pray for continued healing and protection. We pray, God, that you would continue to be with those we know who are struggling with cancer. Lord, those who are struggling with other terminal diseases, or other diseases that may seem like they just will never go away. And God, we know that you are the great physician. God, we know that you comfort us in our times of great need. So I pray that, Lord, for my friends who are struggling. Lord, we know that there are those who struggle with depression, especially as the winter months have continued to drag on. Lord, as the clouds continue to hide the sun, we just pray that you would be with those that struggle with depression in this season that they would lift their eyes to you and see you even in the darkest of moments. Father, we pray over this service. We pray, God, that you would be revealed through your word, that, God, you would speak through me, that I would decrease so that you may increase. And, Father, I pray corporately that we would feel your love and your grace today, that we would understand our place before you that we would fall once again to our knees at your throne this morning. I pray all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my friends, it is a joy and a privilege once again to be with you. Um, as I was saying to some of you during the greeting time, I don't get up here enough, and I totally believe that. It's always fun to see um, just the amount of growth that continues to happen here, and I mean, not just numerically, but also spiritually, seeing people grow in depth and insight. Um, as many of you know, we've been going through the 
small letter of 1 Timothy um, for the past few weeks, and um, I have uh, been looking forward to preaching on this, um, the qualifications for deacons. Um, as we got to talk about overseers, um, it's always interesting to talk about what overseers are and then have to stand up and preach, knowing that you guys now have the list by which to judge me, um, to be able to say, uh, if I am indeed able to teach, um, and hopefully uh, I will not disappoint. But fortunately, it's the Word of God, so as long as I stay close to that, we should be okay. Um, as you guys saw in this recap video, um, I think it's interesting how these two connect. Uh, we had this opportunity, this amazing opportunity to serve in the inner city of Denver. Now, you probably wonder why Denver. Um, selfishly, it's because I grew up there. I have a heart for that area still and to have a lot of connections with a lot of the ministries around there. Um, in fact, the church where we served uh, was actually where my wife worked for many years. Um, and I had an opportunity to volunteer there many times as well. Um, just an awesome group of people, and I always want to make sure if we're going to go serve, then I want to make sure that the place where we serve is um, scripturally sound, is uh, serving the community in a real way, and uh, isn't just for some kind of experience, but is really a way to minister to the students. Now, my friends, God showed up on this trip in so many amazing ways. And like I said before, I could probably spend the rest of our time together telling you hysterical stories and deep stories, and just amazing stories of what God did on this trip. But I'm actually going to let the students and our other leaders do that at the lunch. And not just to get you guys to go, but I think it'll be best served for you guys to be able to do that. And some people are actually, uh, I, I see a couple of wiping of heads. You're afraid I'm going to share certain stories? Okay, I'll let you guys share those too. Um, hopefully I've uh, piqued your intrigue. Anyway, the thing that I noticed the most from this trip and you're probably wondering, like, how was a mission trip with students, how does that correlate to, to deacons? Well, what I noticed is what I think this passage is talking about is this, that God can use all people from all paths to accomplish his purposes. God can use all people from all paths for his purposes. While we were serving at the Denver Rescue Mission, one quick story, I saw the students running around serving a ton of people. I mean, this was 600 people in two hours that got breakfast because of what our students were able to do. I saw them running around and engaging with people, and what's so great about our students is that they are the quickest people with a smile ever. They went up to, like, random people who even I was like, I don't really know if I want to, like, talk to that person, and would just, like, go up, shake their hand, and say, hey, you know, my name is such and such, and I'm really glad you're here. How can, you know, what can I get for you? What can we do? And while that was so amazing to see. What I then saw, more often than I was expecting, is I saw those same people who we went to serve turn around and start encouraging our students. Those same people came around and started talking about how Jesus worked in their life. You see, we went with this idea that we were going to serve a people, and in many times, we ended up being served by those people. You see, these people that we served People from the street, people from every possible walk of life and every possible story you can imagine. They actually ministered to us. I saw the students interact with people who looked completely different than them. Interact with people who smelled different, who spoke different. And yet they both ministered to one another. 
I actually think every one of us was amazed at how many people we interacted with who actually already knew Jesus and wanted to tell you about him. How many of the people we talked to who didn't have a roof over their head that night who wanted to tell us about the greatest thing in their life was meeting this man named Jesus. Who were just as quick with a smile. Who were just as eager to jump in and serve. I mean, there was one person at the rescue mission that I think actually picked up more plates than the people we had uh, designated to go and pick up the plates. He was in this like bright orange Jesus shirt. It was so cool. And he was talking with everybody and just sharing the gospel with everybody. He told us his story. It was so amazing. What it showed me was something that I think goes against what a lot of us maybe have grown up to think, or at least something that I have thought, which is the most spiritual people oftentimes in my mind are the people who devote their, their living, the pastors, the elders, the overseers that we talked about last week. And sometimes it's easy for me to think that those are the most spiritual people. And in fact, in church history, a lot of people thought that the most spiritual people were the ones who went away into monasteries and did nothing but study God's word. But yet, what we saw was the opposite. To be honest, the most spiritual people, I think, are the people who don't have the title. I think some of the most spiritual people that we met were the people that we went to serve. And what I learned personally, I don't know if everyone else felt this way, but what I learned is that we can, like, if we get so caught up with titles and we get so caught up with if you know, you can only serve in a certain way if you're given a certain title, then we miss out not only on ways to serve, but on ways to learn as well. What I saw is that our students lived out what we talked about last week. And actually what we're going to continue to talk about today, and what's, what's amazing is that you notice these students and the people we served did not need seminary degrees. They didn't need the title of overseer, but they were all doing ministry. They honored God by using whatever gifts he gave them on this trip. If you guys remember, and through other areas in Scripture, we all belong to the holy priesthood of every believer. It doesn't say just overseers. It doesn't even say just deacons. It says every believer belongs to the holy priesthood of God. And every gift that we are given is a spiritual gift. Now, while some churches and some denominations have taken what is written here and created an office, I think at times it can actually be a hindrance. Because if you are so caught up again, like we said, if you're caught up in titles, then you miss opportunities to serve. And my friends, I truly believe that what we're given here for deacons should be every Christian. And the reason I say that is because the word that is used for deacon, dekaionos, literally means servant. And who of us should not be called to serve others? Which of us should not be called to be a servant? So if you want to turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, it should be in your bulletin, in your copy of God's Word. And just as a reminder, if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, let Pastor Jordan or let me know and we will give you one. We want to make sure that everybody has a copy of the Bible to, to, to use, to have. Um, I prefer the pages I love the actual book. Um, I have one on my phone that I use from time to time. But if you want a copy of God's Word, let us know. We'll get you one. So looking at 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. 
Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. Now, as a broad view, I want us to look at these qualifications and ask, which of these should not be present in every Christian? Which of these should not be present in every single one of us? The character that is given here should be exemplified by each and every one of us if we serve in the name of God. And before we dive into this passage deeper, I want us to look at a couple of specific examples of deacons or of those who exemplify what it means to be a servant. And a lot of the time, uh, the first time we actually see this, this calling given in Scripture in the early church is in Acts 6. And actually starting in verse 1 of Acts 6, we see kind of this reason that there was a bit of a separation between elders and between what are called servants or deacons. So in Acts 6, starting in verse 1, it says this, says, Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now I want you to see this here. What we see here is not a difference in hierarchy. The elders were not saying it is beneath us to serve tables. What the elders and the, the twelve are saying here is that it is a difference in gifting. It is a difference in gifting, not in a hierarchy of spirituality. Because honestly, when I first read this passage, I honestly thought that the, the elders here seemed a little elitist. It seemed like, oh, we can't give up the honorable work of preaching God's word to go serve other people, to go serve tables. And at a first reading, it kind of seems that way. And I don't know if, if that's just my bent when I read something like that. It's, if I'm in kind of a sarcastic mood, I read it sarcastically. But I don't see it that way anymore. Maybe it's because I've served as a pastor and I see what happens when a person tries to take on everything and a person tries to just do everything because we feel like it's our responsibility as elders to do all the work of ministry. I don't know if Jordan feels the same way, but I know I do sometimes. I feel like I take on a lot more than I probably should. And what I see here is that the 12 were divinely selected and gifted to preach and to teach. And in an early church, such as we see in Acts, the very first of the churches, that work takes a ton of time. And that work takes a ton of, of preparation and prayer. And because of this, some of the people in the congregation were being overlooked in the distribution of benevolence, and the distribution of food. And when they brought this to them, instead of being like many of us, 
Where if honestly somebody comes up to, if somebody were to come up to me in this time and said, hey, some of these people are being neglected in the distribution of food, like, could you do that? I'd be like, okay, well, maybe I could find some extra hours in my day, or maybe I could work a little later, or maybe I could figure out a way to take care of these people myself. And interestingly enough, that's actually the more elitist way of looking at it. Honestly, that's actually the wrong, I guess is the best way to describe it, the wrong way to look at it. Because instead of saying that we'll just continue to work ourselves to death, what the elder said is, no, let's find people who are gifted to do this. Let's find people who are designed to do this kind of work, who are, know the people, who are in the congregation, who are in the world, and can serve that way. You see, it would have been elitist to not appoint others more gifted to take on the distribution of food. And yet, interestingly, we actually see later that some of the greatest conversion stories and sermons are actually given by Stephen and Philip later on in Acts. Stephen has a whole chapter devoted to a sermon that he gave right before he was killed, which is one of the best illustrations of how the Old Testament connects to Jesus. We see Philip, the same Philip that was designated here being the first to convert an Ethiopian and start what is still considered one of the oldest churches in the world. The Ethiopian Christians. So it's interesting to see that while, like if, if, I always wonder if the elders wouldn't have appointed these men to take on this, like, gift of serving and give them an opportunity to serve, I wonder if they would have had opportunities to do those things later. Or have we as a culture become so caught up in titles and feeling like a person needs to be you know, qualified in a sense with all of the right degrees and all of the right things that if somebody doesn't have those, then they're somehow dissuaded or maybe scared even to serve. My friends, I hope you don't feel that here. I hope you do not feel that because we have pastors and we have people in different positions that they're the ones who are supposed to do all the work. My friends, in Ephesians 4, it says actually that the the work of pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Our responsibility is to equip you to go out and serve. Because if it is up to a couple of us to do the work, then so few people are going to be reached. There are people right now that I'm sure will come to mind for each and every one of you that probably would never darken the door of a church, but who you see on a regular basis at work or who you see in your day-to-day operations. Think of that sphere of influence that each and every one of you has. Think about the people you interact with on a daily basis. And think about if, if maybe it was explicit or implicit in your upbringing, if you think as you walk past somebody who has needs that maybe the church should take care of it, or maybe a pastor should take care of this, rather than saying, what can I do to take care of this? It's a question that so many of us wrestle with every day. There are times where even I say it would be easier for somebody else to take care of something rather than saying, how can I do it? My friends, that is an example that I hope to set for our students when I interact with them. It's an example that I hope to set as one of how can you serve right now as opposed to how can you serve once you get all the right degrees or all the right credentials or all the right training or whatever that looks like. How can you serve right now? The heart of a deacon, which I believe should be the heart of every single Christian, is that every task is spiritual. Every task is spiritual. 
And think of this, there's no task that is beneath us. There's no task that is beneath us. Now, in order to do these tasks well and to handle the temptations and pitfalls associated with this kind of service, God, through Paul, gives us qualifications to look for and to cultivate. And I love having this this list here. And I want to go through them one by one and just pull some of the truth out of these words. What I want you to see here is that this is about a person's character. This is about your character in God. This is not about a list of specific gifts or even a list of specific tasks. And we'll get to that as we go through these. So going back to 1 Timothy 3, in verse 8, we see, first of all, that deacons, likewise, must be dignified and not double-tongued. How many times have you met somebody who says one thing and then does the opposite? How often have we, as Christians, been called the same thing? How often have I been convicted of when my words and my actions don't match? My friends, this is exactly what is being talked about here. To be dignified and not double-tongued means that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And to have dignity means that you are going to act in such a way that your actions and your words align. Think about the message that the world receives when a person claims to have a heart for the lost but never hangs out with a non-Christian. They would wonder if this person is telling the truth about their heart or if there's something wrong with a specific kind of person. Maybe there are some people that are just too bad for that person to hang out with. Now, equally as detrimental is the person who does many Christian actions but then never tells anybody why. I heard a story once of a person in an office who was a Christian but never had the heart or the, or the desire to tell people that she was a Christian. She just did a lot of really nice things. And one day she was talking with her boss, who she found out recently became a Christian. And when she asked, like, hey, why, why did this take so long? Why, haven't, why didn't you say anything to me? I mean, I'm, I'm clearly a Christian. Like, we could have hung out and everything. He said, actually, the reason I took so long to become a Christian is because of you. He said, because I thought I could just be good like you. I thought I could just do all of the good things like you did and just use my actions and be a good person. He said he didn't realize that those good actions came from a place of faith. And I hope that's not the case with us. I hope that the case is when people see us, they don't just see us as good people. I hope they don't see our good works and think they're just a good person. I hope they see our good works and think they have a good God. I hope that they see us and see in us reflected Jesus as opposed to just feeling like if they just worked harder or if they just did more good things, then they'll be good too. You see, my friends, our lives need to show and tell the gospel. Our lives need to show and tell the gospel. That's why it says here that we need to be dignified and single-tongued, meaning that our actions and our work coincide with one another. This next stage, or this next list of qualifications here, it says, not addicted to much wine and not greedy for dishonest gain. And now I put those together for a reason. Because I want you to notice here that this does not promote teetotalism or asceticism. That is the complete and total abstinence from alcohol or that you can't have anything nice. I want you to see here that the problem is character. 
This is not an action, it's a character issue. If a person is controlled by something, whether it's strong drink or, in this case too, money, or if it's the approval of others, if it's the media, if it's video games, if it's gambling, whatever it is, if you find that you are controlled by something else, then you will not be able to serve the Lord fully. If you find that you are serving other things, if you find that these other things are demanding your time, they're demanding your energy, then you will not be the type of servant that God can use fully. Yes, God can still use you. And God still will use you. But your joy might be diminished. And your capacity might be reduced. And the ability to do the things that God has called you to might be hindered. This is a question for each of us to ask And I think if we call it just a list of things to look at, then we'll be like, fine, I'm not addicted to wine. I'm not greedy for gain. That's great. But what about those other things that cause us to lose that servanthood? What about the things that control us in different ways? I mean, for a long time, I'll be honest with you, I I let video games control a lot of my time. And I would actually let my day be determined by how well I did in that video game. Maybe that's how I relate to youth, because video games are kind of life right now. But there were certain games that I would spend 5, 10, 20 hours playing, just constantly trying to get better and better and better, or trying to find some sort of approval in it. My friends, when I got rid of that, it was amazing, because getting married actually did a lot for me when it came to that. And uh, I think I I can share, uh, because this is totally against me and such a, a... wonderful thing about my wife that she stuck with me is when she realized that after we had been married, I think, for about a year and a half, she realized then I had actually spent more time with her than I did with one character on a video game. One of the video games that I had actually logged how many hours that I had played on that game. And it was like 3,000 something. And for what? I have nothing to show for it. I have a lot of time that could have been spent in other things. And Ashley even saw at different times when that game would actually impact how my week went based on how I was ranked in the world or the U.S. or the city, my neighborhood. I, wasn't, I was ranked high in my neighborhood. Um, but I share that with you to say that it's not just wine and it's not just money that control us. It can be anything. So one thing that I want to share with you, just in this spot here, and again, every single one of you is called to be a servant, so I don't want you to think that because you don't have the title of deacon that you're exempt from this. One thing I want you guys to look at is what determines your day? A really healthy attitude when it comes to everything, because I'm not saying that all things are, are bad, that you can't you know, play video games or, or watch television or you know, even, you know, have money or even, I'm not honest, I'm honestly not saying that you can't drink. But what I am saying is, what controls your mood? For some of us, if we're honest, if a certain sports team wins or loses, that determines the rest of the week for us, right? Look at your life and see what is giving you or what is controlling you more than you maybe should let it. And I think you'll find in very interesting places where we go to try to find joy, where we go to try to find approval, where we go to find all these things because ultimately they're not going to satisfy you. 
Only Jesus is going to satisfy that need that you have. If you give your life to him fully, it's not just going to make you a better servant, it's just going to make you better. The closer you get to God, the better he will make you. Interestingly enough, the sins you'll also see illuminated the closer you get to God and the more that he will skim those off and help you. So going on to the next qualification, it says that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Love this line. I love it because I think it gets at the heart of the Christian faith as a whole. Because it says, yes, there is a mystery about the Christian faith. We will never understand God fully. And I'm glad for that. I don't want a God I can understand fully. I want a God who's beyond me. I want a God who's knowable. I want a God who's relational and who reveals himself through his word. But I'm glad that God works differently than me. I'm glad that God works in all things for good in ways I have no idea about. I am glad that we will never know this. There are whys that we will never have answers to the side of heaven. But what I love about this, this sentence right here is that each and every one of us can have a clear conscience about that. Because there are things that we do know about God. And there are things that don't contradict one another. We can have full assurance that God exists. We can have full assurance that Jesus came down into this world, was a historical person, died a historical death, and had a historical resurrection. We can be fully clear in our conscience that those things happened. And when we enter into the world as servants of God, you need to hold firm to those convictions because they'll be challenged. My friends, I hope that you find opportunities to have those convictions challenged because that means that you're hanging out with people who need to hear what you have to offer. If all you hang out with are other Christians, then my friends, you are missing out on some of the most strengthening conversations that you could ever have. God does something in these conversations with people who believe differently. He gives you assurance. He gives you confidence. And when you have that full confidence and that clear conscience that comes from studying the word, from knowing God, from spending time with him, then you are free to serve in every capacity. Nowhere is too scary for you because you have God with you and you have assurance that he has gone before you and that his spirit is even working in people way before you'll ever meet them. Our next qualification, I think, is an interesting one. It says, and let them be tested and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, I think this is interesting because we think of the term blameless, we think that they have to be perfect and they don't. Seriously, none of us are perfect. Only Jesus is perfect and we hopefully make small steps to get there. But what it says is that no one can bring a charge against them. I've heard it translated even that charges against such a person would be laughable. But it's also said that we should have a healthy skepticism of all the things, of things that have not been tested, right? Christians who enter into people's lives and serve outside the church should be strong in their faith and have had many opportunities to be tested. My friends, you need to know that you have opportunities all around to be tested. It's not some formal thing that comes from us as the pastors of this church. We won't 
I mean, there are classes and there are things that we do to help strengthen you, but there are also ways that you can just have that conversation with a friend. Go into an uncomfortable situation. Share Jesus. Wear the Christian t-shirt. But it also would be considered unwise, as you guys saw on that Denver trip, if I just went to a couple of high schoolers and said, hey, I think you guys are solid. Why don't you go talk to that person in that dark alley down there and I'll just hang out over here and, and, and watch. Like, no. Okay, it might have been kind of funny, but no, we didn't do that. What we did is we split up. When we split up into teams, we made sure that there was a solid leader with every single group of our kids. And with that confidence for them to know, like, hey, I can interact with people knowing that this person has been there before and is here to help. Honestly, most of the time, I didn't, I know in my group, I don't know if um, Diane or some of our other leaders uh, felt the same way, but I didn't feel like I had to jump in very much. I felt like I just was kind of there to make sure that they were, they felt that our students felt comfortable and felt confident to be able to talk with people that are different than them. But it was amazing to see what happened when we gave them opportunities to go, go serve. Then what happened was is when we were all walking around Red Rocks, all of a sudden the students decided to pull out guitars and start worshiping. No one asked them to. They just thought it would be a good idea. And as they sat there and worshiped, so many other people were walking around and like experiencing God. We saw people walking upstairs and like um, singing along, which was really funny to me. And some other people, as they were walking around, were um, able to, you know, they, they kind of came up to us, asked what was going on. We started having conversations. We got to pray for them. We got to experience a place of worship at a, you know, in this incredible way when the students, I felt like, had been given confidence through everything else. So maybe this is a lesson for each of us if we're either parents or if we have people in our charge, to give opportunities to serve. Don't feel like a person is going to mess things up because ultimately God is with them. But find ways that you can give your, your kids opportunities to serve. Find ways that you can join with the things that the church is doing to serve, like with Love Spencer or this, this cleanup day. Find ways that you can jump in and serve. Even if you don't know if, if something is going to be fun for you or if you even think that, oh man, I don't, I don't know if I really want to serve breakfast to a whole bunch of people, try it. Give it a shot. Don't let a pre-existing, like a prejudice in a way, keep you from trying something. Give it a shot. And if it's not for you, that's fine. I know personally that I am not good in the nursery because babies are loud. And they don't, you can't reason with them. I've tried and it was very funny. But that doesn't mean that I didn't want to try it first. I wouldn't have known just how ungifted at the nursery I am if I wouldn't have tried it. And in that, I was able to tell, uh, this was a long time ago, but I was able to try something. I said, hey, this, you know, obviously this isn't going to work. This child has not stopped crying. Will not listen to the five points of reasoning that I gave it to tell it that it shouldn't cry. Um, and ultimately, I was able to let people who are far more gifted in the nursery do that work. But I share that to let you know that you can try, try everything. Give it a shot. If you don't think you'd have fun raking leaves, then go try it anyway. Maybe You'll find a gifting that you, don't, that you didn't think you had. Or maybe just by going, you'll be able to interact with somebody that you never would have met before. So the next qualification, I think, deserves some, some time here. It says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, 
not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, I am sorry, ladies, but actually you're not off the hook when it comes to this kind of service if you're not married to a deacon. The word here literally is deaconess. It means female servant. So this is a capacity in which women and men should both have uh, the capacity to serve. And I think the reason that I believe this, not just because of the language, but in how this verse parallels the previous verses. Think about it. It says, their wives, deaconesses, must be dignified. We see um, earlier on in the passage it says that deacons likewise must be dignified. It says not slanderers. It says not double-tongued. Same type of idea. It says sober-minded, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And that says, and faithful in all things. Meaning, I think as a paraphrase of what we just talked about previously. Both men and women should have their actions and their words connect and not be controlled by anything but God. My friends, all Christians should serve in some capacity. All of us are called to be servants. Whether it's volunteers in the church or being lights, wherever you work, excuse me, wherever you live, wherever you serve. My friends, there are people out there who right now are eternally condemned to hell. There are people out there right now who are dying, who will die tomorrow. And unless we as Christians bring the message to them, it says in the word, how can they believe if they have not heard? My friends, there are people out there who need the service of good Christians who need us. God doesn't need our work, but our neighbor does. And my friends, if, if we constantly try to hinder ways for people to serve, or we try to divide things, or we say you can't do it unless you have the title of deacon, or the title of overseer, or whatever that looks like, then we are missing out on saving people. We're missing out on doing exactly what God called us to do in this world. And we all have the responsibility to do it. And I think this is exciting. Because it says that each of us should serve. And some of you are incredibly gifted in, a, in so many ways. And they may, they may seem so different than maybe what the church needs. But seriously, the church and like, the world of Christianity, the kingdom, can use every single one of your gifts. Because remember, every gift is spiritual. So in the following qualification here. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Now, I've seen some have actually used this verse to say that only men can serve in this capacity, which is why I think that they try to translate the above as deacons' wives. But interestingly, as I've studied this passage, in the first century, the reason that they, I feel like the reason Paul put this in here very clearly is because in the first century, it was pretty common practice for men to have multiple wives but it was not common practice at all for a woman to have multiple husbands. He was addressing a problem that existed and didn't mention a problem that didn't exist. I think that's why this verse is specific to men. He's saying to be one, a one-spouse person. And literally, the, the translation here says to be a one-woman man. And I think in the capacities of deacon and servant, um, it says, this is about, again, it's a character thing. This is, is somebody faithful to a person? Now, this doesn't mean that a person has to be married. This doesn't mean that a person cannot have been divorced. This means that this is a character issue that comes, is this person going to be faithful 
to their spouse if they're married, or would they be the kind of person who will be? Because faithfulness is one of the most important things that God looks for. He says, are you going to be faithful, not just to the outside world, are you going to be faithful to your spouse, but are you going to be faithful to me? God constantly, throughout the entire Old Testament, talks over and over again about faithfulness. Calling the church, as, uh, calling Israel, calling the church his bride. This is a character issue that says, will you be a faithful person? I think also, as this talks about managing children and households, I think it guards against a very real problem that all Christians can face. And that is to make sure that our service to others never causes us to neglect our families. There are a lot of us in here who are gifted and can serve really well. But my friends, if you start to notice that you're spending more time with the church or you're spending more time volunteering than you are with your family, then there's something wrong. My friends, your family is the first ministry that you were given. I've been told by our elders, and I believe this time and time again, that I was a husband to Ashley before I was a pastor here. And if anything that I do causes her to feel neglected, then I need to make sure that she comes first and others come second. God has given us families for a reason. That is your primary ministry. The family is the primary ministry. And while we at the church can certainly use as much volunteers as we can get, my friends, it is, it is up to us, but it's also up to you to see if that serving is causing you to neglect your family. And I want to give you the permission that if you feel like that's the case, that it's okay to scale things back. It's okay. If anything, it's biblical. Just make sure you tell somebody first. Don't just like not show up one day. Just tell somebody that you're going to want to scale back. Talk to them. Make sure you do it well. But I just want you guys to know that because as much as we try here, and I love seeing that at this campus, how you guys are so good at serving in so many different ways, and so many of you serve, we never want to get to that feeling that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Because those people have families and have other things that they need to do. So maybe it's convicting for some of you to serve less. Maybe it's convicting for some of you to serve more. Just listen to that. Listen to what the Lord is saying to you through this. Our final qualification that is listed here says that for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. My friends, those of us who serve and exemplify these characteristics are looked up to. There are going to be people out there who are going to look at you and wonder, what? who is your God? Like, who do you serve? Why are you so joyful? Why do you do these things? Why do you serve with abandon? Why do you love people before you even get to know them? People are going to see if your actions and your words align. They're going to see if you serve the Lord with passion and joy. And my friends, it'll be attractive to them. Because we're all looking for something that we can devote ourselves to. We're all looking for purpose. And when people see that that purpose and service is given through God, it's going to be attractive to them. They're going to see that something there's something to maybe this God talk that we have. They're going to see that maybe if they knew this Jesus, they could find joy in serving others too. 
My friends, by using the gifts that God has given you to serve others, it's one of the greatest ways for you to actually grow your faith. Just like I said before, we saw that in Denver. I think every single one of us was as impacted by the people we served as they were by us. Now you're probably wondering, what does this mean for us today? What I want you guys to see is that ultimately, like I've said, if this has been explicitly taught or implicitly caught, many of us believe that there are spiritual gifts and non-spiritual gifts. There's some of us who believe that certain things can be used by God and certain things that can't. And my friends, barring a few extreme examples, God can use everything for his purpose. God can use your gifts for his glory. And what we've seen here is that every gift is actually a spiritual gift. Because think about it. What gifts have you been given that you did not receive? Yes, you may cultivate them. You may train and you may find ways that you can serve and grow. But if you are gifted in some way, no matter what it is, it has been given to you by God. Think about if Stephen and Philip in Acts 6 would have, been, would have had the same view on gifts that many of us have and thought that distributing food to the hungry was somehow lesser than preaching. What if Stephen thought that preaching and sharing spiritual truth was only for the elders of the church? We wouldn't get one of the greatest sermons in Scripture. What if Philip thought that evangelism was only for the people who brought him to faith? It was only for the elders of the church. He never would have converted the Ethiopian eunuch and the church in Ethiopia would have never been formed. So what does this mean for you? How are you gifted? There's so many tests out there, and Lord knows I've taken most of them. And you can get labeled eight ways from Sunday, but ultimately, I want you guys to know that the best way that you can find out how you're gifted is to try stuff. It's to serve. And to be okay if you're not good at something. I think a lot of us need to hear that. Be okay if you're not good at it. I am totally okay that I'm not good in the nursery. Because, like I said, I've seen people who are really good at it, and I want to get out of their way. Maybe you have a gift for taking care of infants and toddlers. I know that our nurseries are always looking for volunteers, and there you can actually catch a glimpse of how God cares for each and every one of us. When you hold a child in your arms, whether they're screaming or not, you get an idea of how God sees us. You may not think that changing diapers is a spiritual thing, but it's incredibly spiritual. Now, maybe God has given you a great mind for business. I know some of you work in the banking industry. I know some of you work as, as business owners or um, in business. My friends, that is also a spiritual gift. I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with a man who was one of the, the biggest donors for the Denver Seminary. He donated an entire wing of the school. His last name is Lawan. if you guys have heard of Lawan and Associates. Um, this guy has, he's given away more money than I'll probably ever see in a lifetime. And it was interesting to talk to him because he said, um, I think he really shows the heart of a deacon. He said this, he said, God did not make me a preacher. He said, God did not gift me as a preacher, but he gifted me in business. He said, yet interestingly, through this, God has allowed me to have many people trained to be pastors and Christian leaders that never would have been able to otherwise. He gives scholarships. He devotes a lot of his money to the school. And he said, if God would have gifted him to be a preacher, maybe he could have reached 100 people. But because God gifted him in business, he has now been able to give scholarships to hundreds of pastors. 
He's been able to train and to cause the seminary to have thousands of people trained each year. And it's interesting to think if he would have thought that being a businessman was somehow not spiritual, maybe he never would have given and none of us would have been able to go to that school. Now what about some of you who are gifted in prayer? We talk about how some gifts are a little bit more clearly spiritual, but some people don't feel like prayer is a very practical gift. I want you to know that numerous churches would not have the people in them if it weren't for the prayer of the people. Charles Spurgeon even said this once, that great talents you may never have, but you will do well enough without them if you abound in intercession. This is the same man that would give everything in his church, he would share it with everybody except for the pastoral prayer for the church. This is the the same man who would have a group of people in the basement of the church praying constantly for the sermon. If you abound in intercession, if you are gifted in prayer, my friends, use that gift. It is as practical as any other gift. Ultimately, whatever you're gifted in, we learn from this classification as deacon. We learn from what it means to be a servant that God can use our gifts for his glory. And you don't need a certain title or an office or a degree to do that. As we close, I want you to hear this. As Paul says to uh, the church in Philippi, because ultimately our character and our understanding of what it means to be a servant is rooted in Christ himself. In Philippians 2, 6-11, through 11, Paul says this. He says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you please pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for what you have given us. We thank you for every gift Lord, even the ones we may not think of are spiritual, God, you have given us to be used for your glory. I pray for my friends here, God, that they would learn from your example, that they would serve, that they would grow in their faith by seeing how you serve, and that they would grow in seeing how you love by how they love people. Please, Father, give us opportunities to experience this, to use the gifts that you have given us, Help us, Lord, to try to fail and to try again to see how we can best serve you and best work in the kingdom, Lord, not because you need us, but because you want us and you want our joy. So I pray, God, for all of my friends here as they search for ways that they can serve you better, as they search for things that may control them, that, Lord, you would give them power to break those, th- those habits and, God, that they would be able to give themselves fully and completely to you. Thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Stephen's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.